Go Ask Alice is a show intended for adult audiences because adults want to learn too. Sometimes we cover sensitive material, so please take care of yourselves and listener discretion is advised. Now on to the show. Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random Internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I'm Santa today. Ho, ho, ho. With me is... I'm Lindsay, and I hate the snow. <gasps> and I'm Sarah, oh. and I love the snow. <laughs> okay, well, easy for you. It's summer for you right now. <laughs> I hate summer. I love the cold. Oh, God. This is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes every week. We all start on the same wiki page. At the start of the week, we wander around in procrastination mode until we find something we cannot stop reading. This week, we started actually on Christmas. And this is our 25 Clicks to Christmas episode. Yay! 25 Clicks! (laughs) So to briefly change up the rules a tiny bit, we started on Christmas and we clicked 25 clicks away until we read something we could not stop reading. I'm not going to comment on whether or not we deserve coal in our stockings for breaking said rules, but I do know that we have some (laughs) real interesting topics for you guys this week. But before we do that, Sarah, would you like to introduce our question of the week? Yes, I would. This week's question of the week, I think this is a golden one. This is excellent. It is, what is an ancient video that you quote all of the time? Because I quote so many ancient videos just every day in my everyday life. So I'm keen to see what you guys say. What's the one you just like end up saying the most like gut reaction to things? Oh my God. Probably I say hell yeah a lot as in like gentle marbles. (gasps) That's why you do that? Hell yeah. I love Jenna. I love Jenna so much. Um, But then it's like. Oh my God. I thought that was a you quirk. No, that's a Jenna quirk that I stole because I love her. (laughs) Oh my god. But then there's like classic vines like Fresh of Arkadu or um, <laughs> like Roadwork Ahead. Yeah, I sure hope so. I sure like, hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, Drew, what what depths of the internet do you quote? There are too many videos that I quote. Um, but my my absolute favorite is one where it's a plaintiff and a judge. They're interacting, and the judge is like the plaintiff is just being the worst person possible to this judge. At one point, he says, "You fuck man," and that's my absolute <laughs> favorite phrase. Is you fuck, you fuck man. man. He calls him a fuck man. And then, of course, my absolute second favorite video, this guy's talking to this woman and she just looks into his car and just goes, call a judge and get some fudge. And he's just like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And then he asks, are you okay? And she just looks at him and goes, nope. (laughs) It's my favorite. Nope. Oh my God, it's so good. Nope. (laughs) Was she like drunk driving or drug driving? She was just, she was just having a a having a good time. Bad time. I don't know. Maybe a good time. Who knows? There's a famous Australian video of this man who is so drunk in his car and he's like mounted a sidewalk, just sitting in his car. The police come up to them and they're like, hi, you know, what's happening? Why are you here? And he like rolls down his window and he's like, I'm just waiting for a mate. And he's like clearly crashed his car and he's just sitting there. I'm just waiting for a mate. So we say that a lot in Australia too. Just waiting for a mate. (laughs) What about you, Lindsay? I'm really keen to hear what videos haunt your mind. (laughs) 
I would have to say the oldest that I quote the most is, I think it's called Drinking Out of Cups. And it was like one of the very first animated videos I ever saw on the internet, like before YouTube days. And I think... I don't even know if this is factual, but I think I heard once that it's somebody on shrooms in a closet and his friends recorded what he was saying. And one of the, none of it makes sense. And it's like animated to some gecko or something like that. That looks like super, super like late nineties kind of animation style. And one of the things he says is not my chair, not my problem. Oh my <laughs> this God, chair here. I remember that. Not my chair, you know not that? my problem. Yeah. <laughs> No, I say that all the time. Not my chair, not my problem. It's simple. It's sweet. It's straight to the point. Although earlier today, one of my other favorites to bring up, it's an old video, but I think new to the internet, is uh, What Are Frogs? Do you guys know that one? No, I don't know that one. No. It was Celebrity Jeopardy and like clearly from like the 80s or 90s. And it was like Stephen King and, and David Duchovny were on it. And like the answer was frogs. So Stephen King was like, what are frogs? And David Duchovny's like, what are frogs? And then it's like, I also think of the, um, it was like, I forget who it was. It was someone awful, the conspiracy theorist who was going on about they poison water and it turns the freaking frogs gay. Do you remember yes. that? Oh, Alex Remix? Jones. Alex Jones. Alex Jones. That's it. Turns the freaking frogs gay. Simon and I would just <laughs> randomly say that to each other. <laughs> like, what a fucking idiot. This was a terrible question to ask the internet because we had so many submissions. Did we? Yeah. It, it, well, especially the question of the week channel just like blew up. And I think part of it was just like the absolute nostalgia that it triggered for people. So I guess one of our, one of our discord members, old mate brought up, there's no easy way to express this over the podcast, but it's this like person taking a video and this guy walks past it and goes, ha ha ha. ha." (laughs) (laughs) Um, I should probably post these online. <laughs> Drew, so do you want good. you do it better, Drew? <laughs> you want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> he just walks by. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Our bestie Robin posted the absolute classic "End of the World." Everyone quotes that one. I am late tired. End of the world. Or I always go round. Wait, Earth, you might say round. <laughs> Cake Mastermind brought back the Numa Numa dance. That's one I hadn't seen oh, in a long wow. time. I don't remember that one. That was a great one. I, it's hard to rem, like show you that one because it's just this guy dancing to a song. It's not like I can't really quote it without singing the song and I really don't want to. Okay, I'll Google it afterwards. And I will also post them. But also our Discord is chock full of them in the Question of the Week channel. And finally, um, our... Our favorite, well, I can't say our favorite ghost. We have multiple ghosts in the chat. Uh, One of our favorite ghosts, Geist, put a video that is uh, Monday Sucks, and it's to the tune of the Mickey Mouse song. And that was another one from, like, very early internet days. So if you're looking to relive. watch all of these. All of them. They're good. They're good. They're very good. They're very good. We dug our own rabbit hole with that one because it really, I've, I've seen some new videos I've never seen before that are fucking hilarious. Like the Oblivion NPC videos are so funny. They're so good. Are they the people who pretend to be NPCs? It's like, pay the cot a fine. No, they're just. Have you seen them? I, I know. I know those videos. Yeah. Yes. But these are, these are just like people who are strange, who they act like NPCs in a game and you're like, whoa. So they just throw the music on top of it and it's great. Yeah, it's, it's like you're on your own 
recycled dialogue because what you said <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> that's enough at this context. Amazing. So where did everyone end up from Christmas? From Christmas. A 25 click radius. I ended up on, and I'm not going to say if I broke the rules or not. I did. Um, but <laughs> I ended up on the Pepsi number fever. What? Do you know? Do you know about it? I have no idea what this could be. Excellent. Okay. Have you heard of this, Drew? No, I haven't. Okay. Okay. Where did you guys end up? I ended up on a person this time. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Never heard of him. As in Mozart? As in Mozart, yeah. Yeah. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I said his full name. My bad. Who's she? (laughs) That is very rare for Drew to end up on a person. So this is is great. Yeah. How are you going to define your terms? I don't know. And where did you end up, Lindsay? I'm going to talk about Colma, California. Colma, California. Is that a place in California? Yeah, it's a town in California. Okay. Is it some like weird spooky stuff happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm (laughs) so excited. (laughs) It was extremely on brand. But I tried to pick something that was like modern and not historic for a change. I feel like I've been a little historic lately. So I'm going to talk about current stuff. I'm very proud of you. And it's not French. Wow. Not French. It is California. It's not French. Not French. <laughs> Everybody, Lindsay is growing. <laughs> Sorry, France. <laughs> <laughs> growing out of her French phase. Jeez. <laughs> if you're into French, grow up. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, Merry Christmas. Grow up. <laughs> what one do you want to start with? All right. So we have Mozart. We have a place in California. We Oh my god, how am I blanking on Sarah's already? Oh, the number... The Pepsi. Pepsi number fever. Shit, I really want to know what that is. Can that one go first? I don't want to wait absolutely. to figure that out. Okay. <laughs> I'm so excited. So you have absolutely... You've never heard of Pepsi number fever? No. No. Is this an illness? Not an illness, but a chaotic story. So have you seen the new... They're, they're advertising a TV show called Pepsi Where's My Plane on Netflix. Have you seen the ads for that? God, no. no. What? Oh my god. So Pepsi has had some bad promotional problems pepsi where's my plane is a whole other thing it's based on a true story that's a whole other chaos this is like the original chaos with pepsi though and i say this as a pepsi lover but oof this was a big boo-boo so we've kind of got to set the scene so we're going back into the early 90s it's 1992 and we're in the philippines and pepsi is trying to boost their sales they want a bigger market share so they're like how can we do this how can we how can we get more people to want to drink pepsi or buy our products So they decided to come up with like a promotional game that they were going to do. And they kind of based it a little bit around like, have you played Monopoly? Like the McDonald's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of like you could win randomly. Randomly in quotation marks. Okay. They came up with the game, which was Number Fever. So all of their Pepsi-based products under the lid would have a number on it. (gasps) Oh my God, I remember that. You remember? Me? They've done it. Like Coca-Cola has done similar things in the past with like... Like you buy a soda, you twist off the cap, and then underneath the cap there's a code and you put the code in online. That's how they do it nowadays. Like validate your code or like there'll be a sticker 
on the backside of the label. This, because it was the 90s, there wasn't like widespread internet, they would announce it every night on TV. They would have somebody oh. draw the number randomly, again in quotation marks, random number, and d- announce that that was the winner. So that that is the gist of it. And the winners, so if you won, if your number was one of the lucky ones, you could win anywhere from four American dollars, like prizes worth four American dollars, like, a, you know, a six pack of Pepsi or whatever, or up to 40,000 US dollars. Wow. It's a lot of money. And so I wrote down like really important to note that $40,000 was equivalent to 611 times the monthly wage of a person working in the Philippines at the time. So it was like game changing amounts of money. Yeah. So it was in theory, like a really good idea. You have this competition. People want to buy more products because they want more chances to win. You know, everything's going great. It's a great idea. And when they were developing it, they had set aside $2 million worth of prizes. So they're like, yep, you know, this will hopefully boost our revenue by X million dollars and we're going to take 2 million of it to give out as prizes. So a pretty decent prize pool. Not not too not too shabby. Was this all over the world? Just in the Philippines. Okay, so now I get what you're saying where it's like game changing for the Philippines to win this money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean 40 grand, that that's even now, if you gave me 40 grand, that would be game changing. Oh, absolutely. That's why, that's why I was like, wait, why are you talking about the Philippines? Like, that would change my life right yeah. now, right here. <laughs> this, is, okay. this is just, it was a competition just ran in the Philippines by Philippines Pepsi Company. So like a subsidiary of it. So it was an enormous success. Originally, they were only meant to run for a four month period of the competition. So four months worth of the competition. It was, it did excellent. So it raised the sales of Pepsi monthly from $10 million to $14 million. So an extra $4 million a month in profits. Oh my God. Amazing. Doing great, right? Yeah. It also changed their market share. So they went from 19.4% to 24.9, which is huge. And yeah. they're yeah. competing with things like coca-cola so massive difference everybody is fucking stoked they're like this is the best thing we've ever done this is excellent right yeah so by the end of that original four-month competition they'd given away uh 51,000 prizes including 17 of the grand forty thousand dollar prizes <gasps> oh my god <laughs> That's a lot of money. It's a lot of yeah. money, but they're within budget. They're within their $2 million budget. Yes. Everything's looking fine. They've made more money than they even expected. So they're like, you know what? We're going to extend it. We're going to extend the competition. Should they have quit while they were ahead? They should have. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So they extend it by another five weeks. So just over another month worth of competitions. And this is where shit hit the fan and like chaos completely struck because somebody somebody's i'm sure many people did not fully think about how the extension was going to work number wise it was the second week of the extension again everything's going fine people are still winning they're within budget everything's going great until one night the nightly news announces that the winning number for that day was number 349 so it doesn't sound that exciting you're like cool it's just a number We've got to remember for the original competition, there was a less a list of winning numbers. So there was a list of the numbers that which could randomly be lucky, but they were the winning numbers. Every other number was designated as a non-winner or a non-trigger. And so if you've got a non-winning number, you print hundreds and thousands of that number on the bottle. <gasps> because you know it's not going to win ever. Oh, no. Yeah. So I'm going to guess 349 was a very common number. It was incredible 
incredibly common. It was one of their non-trigger numbers. They were not meant to win. And there was only ever meant to be two bottles with the winning number every day. So every day that the list of the numbers which could win, there was only ever two bottles that had that number that were printed. That had ever been produced. So 349 originally was like one of these just blasé numbers. Throwaway numbers. They printed 800,000 of them. Oh my god! Oh no. Because they were like, it will never be used until it was. Oh my god! What happened? For the prize that was announced that evening, the number of 349 bottles, cumulatively, it would be worth $32 billion. <laughs> oh, no. oh my god. Yeah, if they had to pay it out. I cannot wrap my head around, what was it, $80 billion? Um, $32 billion. Technically, they should have paid out. So we've just announced that number 349 is the winner. There's 800,000 of them across the Philippines. Even considering the ones that probably made it to landfill, there's like hundreds of thousands of people who think they have just won a life-changing amount of money, which sucks. So you can imagine people were really pissed off. So thousands and thousands of Filipinos went to the Pepsi bottling factories around the Philippines the very next morning to claim their prize. They're like, yes, I have the winning ticket. Give me my money. Uh, But because technically none of the bottles had this special security code, which was part of the competition, the winning bottles always had a security code on them so they could confirm that it was the two printed winning ones, Mm. that they could void the prize and say, no, it's not valid. That was a mistake. And the news... The news the next morning announced and all of the newspapers printed that the actual winning number for the night was 134. So 349 was not the winning number. But obviously people think that it is because they've just broadcast it to the entire nation. And so after an emergency meeting with the PepsiCo executives at 3 a.m. that very night, they decided that they would offer 500 pesos or 18 American dollars to all of the holders of the mistaken bottle caps out of good faith to say, we're so sorry this was a mistake. But here, here is still $18 or here's your prize worth $18. And it was a gesture of goodwill because they technically didn't legally have to. I mean, that was kind of nice of them, but also like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's kind of nice, but also I, I'm going to get to it. Ship still hits the fan. Like, I think they were trying to subdue the outrage, but people are going to be outraged regardless. Yeah, like, yeah. It's a big mistake to me. I would. So 486,000 people accepted that prize. And it cost Pepsi almost $9 million. <gasps> so like two whole months of their increased profit out the window. So right now out they're the like window. barely breaking even with this stupid competition. Oh, fuck. It gets worse. Oh, people die. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> It's really bad. So we're going to, yeah, like people actually do die. So we're going to get to the dark side now. And I'm so sorry, but I'll try to approach it as nice as I can. So obviously people were really upset and there was heaps of people who just refused to accept that settlement offer. And they formed a consumer group called the 349 Alliance, which organized to boycott all of the Pepsi products. They held rallies outside the offices and the bottling plants. They held rallies outside the government. Um, And many of these protests were super peaceful, just trying to get their point across until a couple of people took it a little bit too far and they became deadly. So on February 13th of 1993, a school teacher and a five-year-old child were killed in Manila by a homemade bomb, which was thrown at a Pepsi truck in protest. Wow. 
okay, that's a that's a bit of a bit of a jump. Isn't that sad? But like also like the truck, like not even the factory. Like it is like an no, all-out thrown... war against Pepsi. Yeah, on the street, thrown at the truck on the street. Wow. It got worse. So in May, so just a couple months later, three PepsiCo employees were killed by a grenade, which was thrown into their warehouse. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, so so far we've got five people who have lost their lives. Pepsi executives received thousands of death threats. As many as 37 company trucks were damaged by being pushed over, um, like stoned or like burned, like literally set on fire. Thankfully, they were the only deaths, but deaths that did not have to occur. No. At all. Yeah. So 22,000 people tried to take legal action against PepsiCo in at least 689 different civil suits against PepsiCo and 5,200 criminal complaints for fraud. Oh, shit. I didn't even think of that. So imagine all the legal fees that Pepsi is putting as well. So this competition, not good anymore. (gasps) How did they not bankrupt Pepsi? Yeah. So... In 1993, in January 1993, before the first deaths, Pepsi had paid a fine of 150,000 pesos to the Department of Trade and uh, Industry for violating the approved conditions of the promotion, so for making the mistake in the first place. Okay. Mm -hmm. On June 24th, 1996, a trial court awarded the plaintiffs in one of the lawsuits 10,000 pesos or 380 uh, American dollars. So, But this was several years after the actual event. Three, four years later, they got $380. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Three dissatisfied plaintiffs appealed. And in 2001, so again, we're now like years, we're almost like a whole decade away. The court had re- re-evaluated and awarded them 570 US dollars as well as pay all of their attorney's fees. This is still Mm -hmm. a lot for Pepsi to be losing, though. It is for thousands of people. Yeah. 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 So Pepsi, like, they filed a petition against the decision. They wanted it re-looked at. So the suit would end up making its way all the way up to the Philippine Supreme Court in 2006. Holy shit. A decade and a bit after this whole thing happened. And the Supreme Court ruled that Pepsi was not liable to pay the amounts printed on the crown uh, on the on the bottle caps to the holders and therefore Pepsi is not liable for any of the damages. Oh shit. Yeah. Wow. That that's it. A lot of people were really angry. People ended up dying and then it kind of dissipated out after a decade. I think what's like so unbelievable to me about all of this is like how is Pepsi even allowed in the Philippines anymore? Like how is that not like P E P S like a five letter word like be a curse word <laughs> pepsi you you pepsi you pepsi <laughs> but it's not it's also not lost on me that christmas is such a like a coca-cola holiday yeah and like, <laughs> kind of, it's perfect pepsi slander day <laughs> pepsi slander day <laughs> I, had, I do prefer Pepsi over Coke. I'm with you, Sarah. Me, me too. I will die on that hill. Yeah, Pepsi it's just is true. better than Coke. It really just is. Sorry, guys. Sorry. We're not paid to say this. Not that Pepsi could pay us because it sounds like they're in debt. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Do you think that Pepsi should have just paid everybody out front and avoided all of this? They couldn't have afforded to. It would have... Com- they yeah. would have No, they would have bankrupted There wouldn't be a company. Yeah. yeah. So I think... I think what they did at the beginning with trying to pay out the, you know, $18, almost $20 a person was a good, like, gesture of faith. And most people accepted that. 
but yeah i do think it's it's pretty bad because imagine if the lotto numbers were announced and then rescinded like i don't think that's ever happened i don't think so imagine being the person who made that mistake yeah yeah right who fucked up (laughs) yeah it's like lists got mixed up somewhere along the line because they would have had to have approved new numbers for the five-week extension Wow, big, big old boo-boo ending with a lot of fucking pain. And I think this is why they do they do competitions very differently now. Yeah, I bet. I mean, oh my God. Like the fact that like there was like, you know, riots about it basically. I mean, I know that there were yeah. peaceful protests, but like that really escalated. It mm-hmm. really did. Oh my God. So does it change your relationship to Pepsi at all? Do you feel different now? Uh, I still really like drinking Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like a series of super unfortunate events because it didn't have to escalate to violence, yet it did. That's what makes it such a good story is that it is so bizarre. It is just such a bizarre Mm -hmm. circumstance. And I think it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to be philosophical, but it's kind of representative of capitalism and this idea of giant, giant, giant corporations like dangling things in front of people like so they dance like monkeys they buy their products they they do whatever they need for the brand loyalty to try get something back and it sucks that's such a good point like you know that two million dollar budget that they had for these prizes would have been better if they just gave everyone that money like from the out you know instead of playing this stupid game like you said like instead of making people beg for their brand it, it is i agree it is kind of like a um a light to cast on capitalism. Reminds me of gimmicks. It does remind me of gimmicks. Oh, yeah. so it's definitely gimmicky because it's like, you know, you know you're probably not going to win, but you're going to do it anyway because every year when Monopoly comes out at McDonald's, Small and I very rarely like eat McDonald's, but Monopoly month, we are there. Like once a week, we go and get our breakfast from there to get the stupid tickets because we love playing Monopoly. Well, look at you. You won your um, plane cruise that that was not via monopoly well i know but you still win you have played silly games and won (laughs) yeah exactly so i don't know if we talked about it in an episode or if it was offline but sarah was in a middle seat on virgin airlines was that it yeah and they did the middle seat lottery that's only in australia we don't have that at all yeah we do not have that yes sarah won a cruise for her and simon hopefully if we can get the code to work if yes (laughs) sorry sore topic (laughs) it will be another another peaceful protest (laughs) there's a blueprint i think there's fun psychology behind wanting to join in and play like this is why the lotto and i think when we talk about like the lotto it goes back to the idea of the numbers game which was originally played by african-americans in uh i think it was new york and like the bronx there was the secret numbers game where one guy was just drawing random numbers and there was like hedging of bets and it was amazing until you know the whole you can you can read all the history and how you know whitewashed the history is but also how the government realized that they could make a fortune if they legalized this in some way and had like a legal tender of it Um, i didn't know that it's really the numbers the numbers history is great but this idea of well you know just you gotta be in it and the like the statistics just fall out of your mind yeah when yeah when you think about it yeah and something about i like in the times that i've ever done the mcdonald's monopoly one i like pulling the thing off the tab off and seeing what's underneath (laughs) like it's just fun it's like oh i got a little prize already (laughs) life is really tough and sometimes we just need like a tab to pull on 
<laughs> Thank you, yeah. That's so true. It is so true. <laughs> yeah, so that's my topic. I liked it. It was great. Thank you. Where are we going to go to next? We're going to Mozart. Mozart. So Drew, knowing that your topic is Mozart, that totally makes sense that you had six pages to cut down on. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. This man has a, well, he doesn't have a long life, but he's got, he's got a lot, it's a big life. Got a lot of life. I am super keen to hear because like I saw this like video memes I guess it was TikToks of people pretending that they lived in Mozart's time and were listening to his songs dropping yeah can you believe he did that like oh that transition and I'm like I would have loved to have heard what it was like back in the day yeah so this week uh my 25 clicks ended up on Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart who probably from now on I'm just gonna call Mozart because that's way way easier than calling Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart you know it's a great name though it's a great name so one thing that is rather interesting about Mozart uh for me personally is that a lot of his life was spent in Salzburg Austria uh which is where a ton of my family on my dad's side actually comes from we're all from Salzburg and so it was super cool to have learn about this like icon of Salzburg it's funny because I've I have so many family ties to the area, so it's just, like, really cool to me. But anyway, this is about Mozart and not about my family tree because one is way more interesting than the other. (laughs) Uh, So um, where to even begin with Mozart? Well, let's start by saying that he's an extremely prolific and influential composer of the classical period. See, uh, even with a person, I can define my topic. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if you were gonna. Uh, So that's between, the classical period is between 1750 and 1820. So he was born in 1756 and died in 1791, which puts him at the ripe old old age of 35 when he died. Jeez. Yeah, he was 35 when he died. um, That's so young. Yeah, yeah. And he did so much. They didn't specify what illness it was. They just said he came down with an illness. So I don't really know if it could have been syphilis. But him him (laughs) dying... So him dying at 35 is especially interesting to me because of just how many musical pieces he actually produced because he produced over 800 works 800 works for virtually every genre it's more than taylor swift (laughs) i have opinions on taylor swift but that's besides the point (gasps) they better be good opinions uh are they um (laughs) keep it going keep it going mozart 800 pieces 800 pieces mozart so he actually produced in virtually every genre of music that was present at the time so that's that's just like incredible that he's able to produce in so many different styles and different with different techniques and he's just able to produce 800 pieces in in 35 years which is just ridiculous oh yeah my favorite classical piece is mozart what's your favorite classical piece lich mein arsch (laughs) did you know that song no No, i didn't it is a real honest to god one of the 800 mozart songs and it is a like pastoral choir of like men singing leak mine oh just like over and over again mozart wrote it for somebody like as a diss track like it was like he made it to send to somebody as like a fuck you Imagine getting the sheet music in the mail. You have to then <laughs> play the sheet music, decode it, and be like, oh. I think I have a feeling I know exactly who he wrote that for. Because there's there's a, right. a nemesis he has. I want to hear about his nemesis. Well, first we're going to talk about 
the fact that many of his compositions were considered like the pinnacles of the respective genre, especially his operas and, and things like that. They were all basically he's considered one of the greatest composers in, in Western music by many people. So I would say, you know, he's a he's a very good composer. He's a he's a big fucking deal at the end of the day to music just to just in general. And it actually started at a very early age, which is not surprising considering he died at 35. One thing I really wanted to talk to is about how interesting his life was and to a little bit about the controversy surrounding his music because there's a bit of a controversy surrounding some of his, his musical pieces which is which is How? it's it's nuts but it's 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 pretty cool so to begin Mozart was born 27th of January 1756 to Leopold Mozart and Anna Maria. He was the youngest of seven children, uh, five of whom died in infancy. So it's only him and his older sister that that survived to adulthood. As it turns out, Leopold Mozart, his father, uh, was a minor composer himself and was very is a very very experienced musical teacher. So this is where little Mozart gets all of his different exposures to, to all kinds of different genres and all kinds of different music is, is from his father, who's a teacher. So talent runs in the family. Yes. His father wasn't a composer. Well, he, he had a few very noti- very notable pieces of music that he wrote, but nothing, nothing compared to the real Mozart. Mm. Basically, what happened was his sister was at the age of seven, and she was getting keyboard lessons from their father, and little Mozart was sitting there watching, and he was, he was kind of learning along. His sister said that he would often play on the keyboard and he'd pick different thirds, which are chords almost, and he would um, he would play them and be like, oh man, this sounds really good. Um, and he started to like compose a little bit there, but by the age of at four, seven. No, no, he was he was three at the time. Oh my god! His sister was I did seven. Nothing by the age of three. So at the age of four, his father was teaching him little minuets and pieces on the keyboard, and he was able to like replicate them absolutely flawlessly and with great delicacy. So he he wasn't just like smashing the keys; he was able to like really understand that the keyboard can be played oh delicately. Oh my god! A little gentle baby. Yeah, and and he would also be able to keep perfectly in time with it, which was really interesting because you know if you have perfect time you're able to really like you know play the music too quickly too slowly he was able to just keep it perfectly exactly in time and so by the age of at the age of five he was actually starting to compose his own little pieces and starting to put things together and his father wrote them down because he's like this is good shit right here and so he was he was he was basically his first pieces Go on. Was his dad the original like dance mom like stage dad stage (laughs) dad Who's like, my son is a genius. Everything he does, I must write down and share with the masses. I mean, he, he was, was a genius. <laughs> but, but, yeah, um, a little bit. Like, imagine going to parties at the house and he's like, Mozart, play. And little toddler walks up to the <laughs> piano. <laughs> play for daddy. Play for daddy. Play for daddy. <laughs> the little Come here. <laughs> Come here, little I'm Mozart. <laughs> Come here, the Wolfgang. Oh, my God. Put um, the wig on. Daddy got you. Play on the keyboard, son. (laughs) Oh my god. Well, there's a little bit of a debate uh, as to whether Mozart was four or five when you wrote them. I know, not a really big difference, but. Huge difference. A five year old? That's not impressive. But basically, all of these pieces were written within a few weeks of each other, which was super cool that he was just able to, like, crank out this music. And throughout his career, he basically just, like, cranks out music. So in the early years, his father was his only teacher, uh, and not only for music, but for academics as well. But of course, Mozart really excelled in the art of music and was very keen to progress even further than what his father was teaching him. He wanted to, you know, he was just, like, constantly be like, give me more, give me more. I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to learn more. 
Yes. And it became very evident that that little Mozart was very talented, so much so that his father like completely gives up composing, completely gives up his other works just to support his son better. Wow. Wow. This yeah. is dance mom. Yeah, he's a, he's a dance mom. <laughs> and uh, soon enough, little Mozart and his sister, uh, Maria, were traveling with their father and performed as child prodigies throughout Europe. I kind of feel bad for them because they didn't get a normal childhood. What was a childhood back then? They, like, they were like sh- shoving in the coal mines. Like, fucking, <laughs> there's, no, there's no childhood. They were just little humans to boss around and they're just dumber. That's about it. <laughs> Sorry, that's like... Just... Anyway, so at this time, little tiny Mozart was meeting many different composers and actually acquainted himself with their music. So he was he was learning from their music, learning how their music was written, just all kinds of things like that, which will become very, very relevant later. But during this trip, it was believed that he actually produced his first symphony and that it was copied down by his father. So his father was basically just writing all the music down for him and, and, and he was writing it out. And so it was... It was, it was uh, there's no real debate as to if his father wrote it or if he wrote it, but th- there's a bit of a debate later that we'll get into. Though he was actually playing for nobility and the like, this, these family trips were very, 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 very challenging um, with travel conditions being very primitive in Spartan um, because they had to wait for reimbursement and, inv- and invitations from nobility. So basically during this entire time, they're just like, they're constantly like going from like having tons of money to no money, having tons of money, no money. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're living yeah. paycheck to paycheck, basically. No stability. Literally no stability at all. They endured a lot of illnesses because of this, because they would just, you know, basically be living living like crap. Oh. This is around 1768. The family decided to spend a year back in Salzburg, after which little Mozart and his father set off on another tour of Europe, this time leaving their sister behind, which... I don't know, it's a little sad that they kind of were just like, oh, screw you, but... I mean, she was a woman, so we got treated like crap. Basically, little Mozart's father just really, like, he he talked about this a lot. He just really wanted to show how amazing this little dude was, just like as a performer and composer. He was like, hey, look at him, he's so cool! So during this time, Mozart actually wrote a ton of different pieces, but again, really struggled to find steady work in courts with, uh, you know, with sporadic performances being his only source of income and accommodations. So basically, he was just... Uh, a wandering, I don't know, like a wandering act. That's the way to describe it. Bob Dylan. Uh, He's kind of like an adolescent at this point. And he returns to to Salzburg from his big tour of Europe in 1773. And he begins to be employed as the court musician by the ruler of Salzburg. So he he finds a job, basically. He's not a sideshow freak anymore. Good on him. At this point with steady work, uh, not so little Mozart was able to produce a ton of different music over a ton of different genres. So he's basically throughout this entire thing, just assume Mozart is producing music. It's just like no matter what's happening, he's producing music. Yeah. And during this point, he actually became very enthusiastic with violin concertos. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to write a bunch of them. And so he wrote a few of them. They, uh, these were the only ones that he wrote, wrote of this kind. And he just like, he's like, I'm just going to write like 10 of these. And then he just did. And, and they were great. And, and, you know, like phenomenal pieces of music, but he just was like, all right, I'm done. I don't want to write those anymore. So (laughs) it's just like, onto the next mountain. (laughs) He could pick a genre and just be like, I'm going to write 10 like fundamental pieces and then just be done. Like Taylor Swift. Moving on. Um, He will. So he kept building his musical repertoire with steadily increasing like musical sophistication as he was getting older. But the problem was he was getting really bored of Salzburg and he was looking for positions elsewhere because 
he had a very, very low salary and wasn't a big fan of that. And he wanted to, you know, compose for bigger and grander things. He wanted to, you know, compose for bigger courts and, and all that. And then this all worsened in 1775 when the court theater was actually closed. And he was basically like, fuck this. Like, I, you know, now the place that I perform all the time is closed. Like, what am I even doing here? Mozart basically leaves Salzburg and he looks for different opportunities throughout throughout uh, Germany and um, Paris, not Paris, Germany and France. And he was offered a few positions here and there, but he wasn't really able to find any steady work. So much so, he actually literally had to pawn valuables to stay afloat. He was, he was like pawning things off. Oh my god, that's hard to imagine. Yeah, he was, he was really struggling. And at this time, uh, which is like 1778, his, his mother dies, and that sucks. And he's, he's, he's out of work, his mother dies... He just has, like, all this shit happening to him. He's still producing great music at this point, but he's just, like, all this shit is still happening to him, and he's he's just really not happy. And so he ends up going back to Salzburg in 1779. So then in 1781, uh, one of Mozart pieces premieres in, in Munich to very, very considerable success, um, after which uh, Mozart was actually summoned to Vienna, which is, you know, it's a big, big thing. Yeah. Um, so Mozart had every intention of climbing the social ladder, even though his employer just wanted to, to basically stay on hand. So his his employer in Salzburg was just like, you got to stay with me. You can't go anywhere. Like feels like a toxic relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Like, you got it. You got to stay with me. You can't do anything. You're mine. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like that classic thing that's like, if you do your job too well, they won't promote you. They like, don't they want need you to you leave. To st- yeah, they don't want you to leave. Yeah. And... When he meets the emperor, he actually he eventually um, receives commissions from the emperor and, and a, basically a part-time position from him. However, the Archbishop of Salzburg, who I was talking about before, basically says, I don't want you performing outside of my establishment. Like, you're, you're staying here. This causes Mozart to actually attempt to resign from his position in Salzburg, and that gets refused. For, for a full month, they say, no, you're not allowed to leave. And his, his dismissal when he actually is able to leave, is sort of made poignant with a kick in the ass, where the Archbishop's steward literally kicks him in the ass to get him to leave. It's so rude. Oh my God. It's so rude. So that's that's where I think Lindsay's song is is uh, comes into play. Kiss where my ass. Kiss my ass is is the is probably the song to the Archbishop of Salzburg. That's amazing. So I was trying to find a source for this because I was trying to figure out who he was like upset with, and I've looked on like every different language wiki to try to find the story, and everybody like. No- I should say nobody is sure why he wrote it. And it's interesting that the translation could also mean kiss my ass or kick my ass. Like it seems super, super relevant. But just as you said this on the Russian Wikipedia, I found a separate wiki article that says Mozart and toilet humor. And there are many, many examples in private letters (laughs) where Mozart loved pee pee poo poo. (laughs) (laughs) He loved the pee pee poo poo. (laughs) It's just straight up this material has long been a problem for Mozart researchers (laughs) because nobody can figure out. Why this kid is like this? Oh, oh my it's god. So good. That's so funny. About this dismissal, his father was actually very much against it. Was against Mozart saying, like, don't get kicked out of Salzburg, basically. But this was a huge step forward for Mozart because he was able to start an independent career in Vienna. 
and that was just like the a huge step just for him you know musically and just for him like in general as like a, a person because he needed finances so his new career in Vienna began very well where he was able to perform for the emperor and was soon established himself as one of the finest keyboard players in Vienna during 1782 to 1783 Mozart became acquainted with works of other legendary composers I can talk a little bit about it now but basically some people believe that Mozart literally stole music from people <gasps> Like stole stole segments of music from people, different melodies from people, stole without like attributing it to them. Oh no, God no! He he wrote his name all Oof. over it. Um, like there's there's Mozart. one song, there's one song well, that he, was he literally. Starving. Uh, it's true, but um, he took one song. It's different than bread, though. A little bit different. Like if you're hungry, steal some bread. Steal some bread, not art. But he he took one person's song and added added an intro to it, and that would like he called it his song. Then he's just like, oh, I added an intro. It's my song now. Um, so there's a Rude. there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about that. But there, I mean, he still has a ton of pieces that are undoubtedly his. It's believed that he stole some music from people because like they had similar melodies and similar things. But you know, as I said, he was meeting a ton of composers at the time, um, and he was greatly influenced by these encounters with with other musicians because you know they were teaching him different styles and and different ways. And then he had one true friend, one really good friend, Joseph Haydn, <gasps> who Mozart was he absolutely another loved. composer. Yes, he was. And they basically wrote to each other just about how great of a composer each other was. So they're like, I love you. You're so great. I love you. You're great. They write back like, oh, I love you. You're so great. (laughs) They had these letters back and forth of of just like just loving each other. It It was so cool. Uh, so then in 1782 to 1785, uh, Mozart produced a ton of different concerts featuring himself as the soloist. So he was basically producing all these concerts and he was just like, I'm going to be the soloist of these concerts. The cool thing was he would book unconventional venues for his performances, such as ballrooms or, or like just general large rooms versus being in a theater um, because, you know, he was eager to have his music heard by a larger crowd and he was very happy to like let the largest number of people hear it. So he was just like booking these unconventional like theaters basically and he was just like, I'm going to play for all these people in great rooms. So he was getting substantial returns from his music because everyone loved him. Uh, this kind of caused him to get a little bit more of a luxurious lifestyle and the, during this time, Mozart saved very little of his income and would rather spend it on luxuries, kind of just spending money. He would make money, spend it, make money, spend it. So then from 1786 to 1787, he was originally focused uh, as a soloist on piano and writing concertos, but around 1785, he moved away from the keyboard and began his famous period of creating operas. So instead of just like writing purely soloist stuff, he was like, I'm going to write operas now. This brought about some of the most famous operas that are still very much mainstays of, of the operatic repertoire today. Everyone was just like, well, these are like the pinnacle, so we got to play them. A rather funny part about this is that the music for these operas is so complex that it's both difficult for listeners to appreciate and the musicians to play. So are they subjectively good? Yes. So people do think they are good music. Absolutely. When they, people can figure out how to play it. Yeah, it's it's like if you play it well, it's amazing. So then in 1787, Mozart was finally appointed to the emperor's chamber. Uh, he's the chamber composer. This was a little bit of a chain, actually, because the emperor meant to keep Mozart from leaving Vienna for better prospects if they arose. So basically, everyone wants to chain Mozart down. He's just like this great artist. Uh, so the so towards the end of the decade, uh, Mozart's circumstances kind of really started to worsen because of the Austro-Turkish War. Basically, people just didn't have time or money to really spend on music. 
And so um, this didn't stop Mozart from creating music, but it just really stopped him from performing. But he had to kind of move away from his luxurious apartments and, and he had to really better fit his finances, basically, at a certain point, don't we all? So, <laughs> But he still made quite a few trips around, around Europe. So Mozart's final year, 1791, was hugely productive, hugely, hugely productive for his music. Um, he was able to produce tons and tons of pieces of music. This is a time where some of his most admired works are actually created, but that was until he became ill uh, in September 19- in 1791. He continued his, his professional functions for a while, but as his health deteriorated, uh, he became bedridden in November, and then he ended up dying in December. It's quick. It's a very rapid decline. It was, a, it, was, it was a very rapid decline. And he was given a very modest funeral, uh, but this did not reflect his standing as a, as a public composer. But there were tons and tons of memorial concerts held that were well attended in his honor, After and after his death, his reputation rose substantially. So he was just basically a, a super cool composer that, that everyone really loved. And as I said, there are some arguments that some of his music is not really him or, or was, was stolen, basically. At the end of the day, he produced so much music that, you know, that, that was his, that was genuinely his, that I think we still, we can, we can knock him a few points, but he's, that's not going to make him not a, an amazing artist, <laughs> you know? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It was super cool learning about him because he's a huge talking point of Salzburg, which, you know, as I said, my family comes from. It was just so cool to, to read the story of the person who makes such fantastic music in such a short lifetime. So, yeah, it's Mozart in a nutshell. Excellent. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. I had no idea that he had any kind of potential naughtiness in any mm. of his history. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was surprising. Really fascinating. And I had no idea he was so young either. No, yeah, I had 35. no idea his father paraded him around Europe like a dancing monkey. <laughs> <laughs> dance moms. You were so right. It was like dance, dance moms. moms. It is. But it also is like that privilege of, like you can be successful if you have the privilege of time and resources to do things, if that makes Total, sense. Totally, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, imagine if they made him a little chimney sweep. And he's like, I want to make music. And it's like, sweep that chimney. Sweep that damn chimney. <laughs> he's playing air guitar on his little chimney sweep brush. Poor brown little baby. <laughs> I love that he and Hayden were like sending each other fan mail. That's yes. so cute. It is so cute. Have you ever heard of Buckethead? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I had never heard of Buckethead. And for some reason, he keeps showing up in the weirdest places. He is this like incredible guitarist. And I looked up the genres that he has played in. Metal, funk, blues, bluegrass, ambient, avant-garde. He's all over the place. Wow. He performs with a KFC bucket on his head. Oh. And like hides his I identity. I probably have seen him. It's like a budget daft, daft punk. Yeah. yeah <laughs> budget, like, budget daft punk. <laughs> da- yes. So Buckethead has an album called Colma, California. Okay. Oh. Or it's called Colma. Okay. okay. Yeah. Not how I ended up on Colma. Actually, I ended up there because when we were doing the 25 clicks, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get there, like get to something in a directed sort of search. So I kind of clicked around randomly. And if you do that on Wikipedia, more often than not, you end up in some kind of municipality. Like you end up in like a place or an inanimate object. Um, it's very hard to land on something interesting on purpose. But I had a really good feeling especially because the way I found Colma, California was in a little bit of history about graveyards. Colma, California is a real-ass present-day necropolis. Oh. 
It's a necropolis. It's a necropolis. So Sarah, in our episode where she talked about corpse trains, trains, one of my, yes, one of my favorite episodes ever, she gave a really good description of what a necropolis was. So rather than me recreating that description, do you remember, Sarah? It doesn't have to be that description, but do you remember what a necropolis is? Yeah, it's... It's meant to be like an area for the dead. So like a graveyard, a mausoleum, a crematory, you know, area where you put the ashes. It's meant to be somewhere that is specifically for dealing with your dead. And it came about because we had too many dead. We didn't know what to do with them. We couldn't put them in like your local church cemetery anymore because that was not working very well. You can go back and listen to the episode. It was an absolute shit show in London before they figured this out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let me tell you. History repeats itself. (gasps) Okay, I'm very excited. (laughs) Colma, California is present day a real town. Would either of you like to guess the ratio of living to dead? Oh, like five to one. More more dead than living. Oh, oh, I'm going to go 20 to one. Nope. Is there more living than dead? More dead. A hundred to one. Nope. A thousand to one. Yes. Wow. That's (laughs) awesome. There are 1.5 million dead people in Colma, California, and the number keeps growing. Well, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) That's like more people than some of our cities in Australia have in total. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, Syracuse, New York. And then Daniel was like, that's like 100,000. And I was like, oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Throw it out. Throw that one out. 1.5 million people. So much so that the unofficial saying, like the town motto is, it's great to be alive in Colma. That is the name of it. <laughs> oh my God. I need to see what Coma looks like. I'm Googling it right now. I'm very interested in hearing your description. What I learned through the lens of the wiki is that there's like every denomination possible sort of burial grounds. There are loads of many different cemeteries. It's not one massive one. There are many, many different sort of flavors of burial. So you've got different mausoleums. You've got like... Oh my God. It really is just cemetery. It is massive. It's right near oh i mean not right near but it's kind of like on your way to san francisco thank you yes it is in the san francisco bay area which not only did i find very surprising because my whole you know i grew up on the east coast so did drew so maybe we Mm -hmm. have like a shared kind of perspective of san francisco but it's just kind of this like upbeat kind of hippie city that just seems like very sunshiny and you would not think that a very short train car ride away would be the largest necropolis, I think in the US, but I don't know about the world. It is a very, very, very large necropolis. It is fucking enormous. And I am so confused why, like it looks like there's houses amongst some of the graves, but I think they might just be really rich, like mausoleums, like people have built their own Yeah, in the times that I looked at pictures, it kind of looked like an aerial view, looked like a patchwork quilt of many different types of cemeteries kind of put together but there are living people who live there there's 1500 people who live there 1500 living people in colma wow that's not a lot (laughs) it's not a lot at all it's crazy it's not a lot it's a like many uh cities on the west coast it's kind of new because the west coast you know the city development kind of happened in pieces and slowly over time so it was founded as a necropolis in 1924 and in the history of this town they have never 
had more living than dead people. It was founded by dead people first. Oh my God. Was this because San Francisco was overflowing? Dude, you are on it. Yes. So I, a lot of this because is going to How do you mirror- bury people in San Francisco? It's too hilly, right? Exactly. So, okay. The London Necropolis Company was obviously in London. So Sarah, in her episode, told us all about how they had to put people on trains. Wait, Sarah's showing her phone. Wait, are you showing me like a panoramic? I'm, what is it? I'm doing Google Street View. I'm driving through one of the cemeteries. <laughs> and it's so pretty. Wait, wow. can you do a TikTok just like like a tour guide, like narrowly going through? Like, <laughs> okay, on your left. <laughs> this is amazing. What a nice place to be buried. I think what was so weird about it for me was like, you think of a town and a town might have a cemetery in it. And it is so hard for me to wrap my head around the thought of a town being the a cemetery. Cem- yeah. 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 Like it's like inside out kind of like it. the town is almost all entirely cemeteries. And let me tell you one of the funniest facts I read. They have an all out text burst if you live in the town, warning you if there is a funeral about to happen because that is the largest source of traffic jams. Like, hours-long traffic jams for funeral processions so everybody who lives in the town gets special alerts when it's gonna happen. Wow, that's incredible. Yep, the main street... Cyprus is there. So I think that's where a lot of really famous and wealthy people go, right? I have some notable celebrities that I ham selected for you guys. I'm very excited. Getting back to the history of why this happened at all. It was exactly like Sarah said, San Francisco was getting big. And in about the early 1900s, they outlawed no new dead bodies. Do not put any more in the ground. You (laughs) You can't die. No new bodies. No bodies. No new (laughs) bodies. Yeah. You can't die die. Don't. (laughs) No, not allowed. Don't put anybody. (laughs) Well, it's better than like chucking them in the bay. Oh, okay. Fair. (laughs) I'm sure that was done at one point. Yeah. Well, so part of like outlawing was that they said, not only that, but we're going to evict the cemeteries that do exist because this is a hot and growing city and we could be making so much more money off of this land. Yep, we need the real estate. Oh my God. So very, very similar to London. And it was funny because I went back and re-listened to that episode for for many reasons, one of which is uh, coming up soon. So look forward to another episode. Uh, when I was listening to it, it was funny to hear like all of our tone was about like, oh my God, this was in the 1800s and this was just so disgusting and there were bodies everywhere overflowing. Guys, Americans did it in the in the <laughs> mid 1900s, guys. Wow, we have not gotten better. <laughs> we are still kind of fucked. We did not learn. So in around 1912, they were like, "We want this real estate, so dig them all back up." And from 1920 to 1940, 150,000 bodies were moved. They did use a train. If that's going to be your next question, and not only that, did they? Leave, leave them in the coffins because the co- they, they start to break down. Like, this is chaos. Are the bones where they're meant to be? Oh, my God. You have no idea what you have stumbled on. Or you do. You do know what you, knew what you were asking. <laughs> they just, it was like a jigs. They put them all down and was like, just put the tombstone somewhere. You could pay a fee. And if you paid to yeah. move the body, if you paid $10, which I guess was probably a lot of money from like the 20s to the 40s. I'm looking at Drew because we play Fallout. (laughs) (laughs) We've lived in the 40s. (laughs) I 
all they know my spurs got jingle jangle dingle. That's about it. I don't, I don't have any concept just of money. Jingle jangle. How, how much pre-war money? <laughs> they just give you stacks of pre-war money. There's no, there's no like it's denomination. Not, it's not good. Uh, for $10, you could move your grave and the marker, but I did not find anything about whether or not it was kept together. And I'm kind of inclined to believe that they were sloppy about it because it was 150000 And if you did not pay the fee, you were just dumped in a mass grave in Colma. Oh my God. Oh. They outlawed mass graves in England. Like I remember the Necrop- ne- Necropolis yeah, party was, was just like no mass of... graves, but that's right because they at least had the dignity of having like a cheap grave, but a like grave a nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, the paupers deal. That's right. Because yeah, a mass you... grave that's that's problematic when you're near like water tables and stuff. That's when you start getting things floating around. Put on your morbid hats for a minute because this is one of my favorite Mine's facts. Always on. <laughs> Your skull, your morbid skull cap. <laughs> yeah. You know, San Francisco, very eco-friendly and, you know, hipstery upcycling. Mm-hmm. They took the grave markers that were not being transported that did not pay the fee and they repurposed them essentially like bricks. And today they are used as drain gutters and to break the water at local yacht clubs. And so at low tides on some of the beaches, you can see the old gravestones. That is amazing. Yeah. And like kind of fucked. Like you lay your loved one to eternal rest and then you die. And then that gravestone is now at a fucking yacht club. There is no eternal rest. No one gets eternal rest ever. I think Trump proved that by putting his ex-wife on his golf club. Oh my God. This is like on that level for me, like using people's, like the poor people's grave markers for the yacht club is like on that same level <laughs> for me. I'm Googling it right now to see if I can see the, the breaker wall of tombstones. Please let me like send pictures on the discord because I really want to see uh, what that looks like. I didn't end up looking that up. I would help if I could spell yacht. Y-A-C-H-T. I spelled yogurt by accident. <laughs> <laughs> what I also loved was I like told so my boyfriend Daniel is from Long Beach and he always asks me oh wait Sarah's showing us breaking news Sarah is showing us an image I can't see it Sarah Sarah's just holding her phone up to the just post are all those rocks tombstones all of those rocks are tombstones Sarah I thought you were showing me just like a rocky path no they're all the tombstones oh my god Oh my god, I thought it was going to be like four or five just upright. That was like was hundreds. hundreds. Wow. And they just <laughs> chucked there, just like... And it's not even to like protect anything. It's like you don't... You know like when they put up stones to stop the beach shore from eroding into the ocean? So they yeah. just like fill in with a bunch of rocks? That's what that is. It's just like hundreds of gravestones like strewn on the beach to protect it against erosion. That's amazing. Wow. That is so cool. Guys, go ask Alice Retreat. <laughs> San Francisco? Yes. Yes. So I was just, okay, so what I was just saying was that Daniel is from Long Beach. And so when I, he always asks me like, what are you going to talk about this week? And okay, I told him, I told him, sorry, it's spoilers. I know, How but like you. I told him. I told Colin Calvin my topic too. Oh, we cannot be Can't trusted. help it. We, I know. <laughs> Damn love. Drew's the only one not getting cold this year. Oh, I told someone my topic. What are you talking about? <gasps> oh! Was it a suitor? Could be. <laughs> Could be, actually. 
Top 10 anime betrayals. Okay, we'll talk about this off air. Oh, yeah. Daniel is from Long Beach. Right, so when I told him it was Colma, he was like, oh, that's a train stop on the BART. So you can stop off and have a little visit. Well, so here's the thing is that the history of those train stops, that used to be one of the most popular, I guess, directions or routes that the train would take. And then as more and more people came to live in San Francisco, there were more train lines that were closer and closer to the coast. So I don't think it's as popular as it used to be, but most certainly through 1920 to 1940, that was corpses, baby. That's how they got them there. Money, money. They still have a corpse train. A section of I it that's Because if it's an active cemetery. I don't, like, they drive, they drive though, because that's the traffic jams. That's true, they do drive, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, it's probably environmentally more friendly to use the train. Okay, here's the thing I want to know that I didn't look up. So if anybody knows, I, I really, really want to know. What the fuck would so many mass graves and so many graveyards do to the ecosystem? Like, how is the water drinkable in Colma, California. No, I'm sure they pump in their water from somewhere else, probably. Like, like you okay, but like you couldn't use what's under you. Certainly not. But like, how is how is everything not fucked by like the pure concentration of like decay? The, the bodies that like the mass grave bodies, which were probably buried in what the late eighteen hundreds, maybe, they probably weren't embalmed because the embalming is the thing that's really bad for the environment. Your no, natural this was body. Ni- 1920 to 1940. But if people didn't pay for their loved ones that had died ages ago. Oh, yeah. ages ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Okay, fair. Yeah. Yeah, because now, yeah. now it's all about the embalming is toxic. It's super, I mean, formaldehyde and things. It's not good. But if you have a natural decomposition of, you know, organic matter, then it's great for the environment. Unless you got diseases. I think I remember reading a lot of it was also just left. Like, I think that there's probably buildings on a lot of stuff that was left behind. Because think about it, like you were saying, like, if you lift something out of the ground and it's like half decayed, like when this is your nine to five, 40 hours of week, I'd be like, fuck it. That tibia is staying there. Like, I'm not going back down for that. <laughs> like, I, I bet there's shards. I'm not going back. <laughs> oh, there probably is. Oh, my. some of them... I think that right now near San Francisco, I made some note that the Mission District um, still has a lot of cemeteries or a lot of them were evicted Mm. to the Mission District via the streetcars. So I think that there are still parts of San Francisco. Like, I don't know if you can still inter bodies there. It's probably super expensive. Yeah. I mean, the real estate, right? Like, it's probably... Yeah. It's like a big cemetery near us. It is enormous. Like, I thousands and thousands and thousands of tombs it's massive and it's been there for about 100 or so years at least i reckon um but it is dead center in the middle of like a very expensive suburb in melbourne like blocks of land are worth upwards of millions of dollars oh, and so the cemetery would be worth tens to probably hundreds of millions of dollars before the for the real estate that it's on oh my god it's crazy so I like Simon and I always laugh because there's a few empty graves around the place because we walk Lucy there because she really likes I don't know why she likes the tombstones we don't ask questions <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm like this would be so expensive like you've got to be really rich to afford to get into here it's like a secret okay. club and I want in. I was thinking, like, what if you just put up a mausoleum and lived there? Because that would probably be cheaper than trying to actually get a house in Melbourne right now. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> just your little six foot plot. Yeah. 
Lucy loves it. Lucy loves it there. She loves it. It must smell really good to her. That's so weird. It's so crazy. Isn't just death weird? It's bizarre. It is. And it's like, you know, when when you approach it with just a practical, unfeeling, just totally logical mindset, cemeteries are such a waste of space. Like, Mm -hmm. they don't make sense. But then emotionally... They're for the living. Exactly. Exactly. That's well put. It's for the living. Emotionally, it makes so much sense. Which we do enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, speaking of living, I want to hear about the dead. Who is buried there? Yeah. Like, is it super famous? Is it expensive? I don't actually know how expensive it is, but... (laughs) You didn't call up and be like, hey, my friend died. Give me a quote. (laughs) Give me a quote. (laughs) Hey, yeah, can I get a quote here? Um... Let's start off with someone you almost certainly don't know. I, this is the one person I didn't know, but I was very intrigued to read about. George Shima was the first Japanese-American millionaire, and he made his millions in the potato industry, and his name was the Potato King. <laughs> first of all, American royalty. <laughs> He's done a lot for that country. Actually, holy shit. Frederick Wait, the Great. <laughs> oh my God, you're right, because he Wait. loved potatoes. <laughs> this potatoes, the potato greyhound man. The potatoes on his grave. Oh my god, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Oh shit, that actually is a thing. Poor Frederick. Potato Greyhound Man. He had a hard life. You reminded me of somebody I forgot to write down, so I forget his name. The only emperor of the United States is also buried there, which was a wild story. It's about this guy who was basically like, fuck it, there's no laws here, and I'm sick of living in the Wild West. I'm the emperor now. Oh, wow, so okay, that has emperor. to be for another another. That's got to be a topic. I need yeah. to hear that story. That's a separate, separate rabbit hole. Um, you may have heard of Levi Strauss. I think I have, yeah. Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I don't. I can't put it with anything. Have you ever worn jeans? Yeah, Levi's. Oh, yeah. Oh, Levi's. Yeah. Do you think he? Do you think he's buried in Levi's? Probably. I'd be really disappointed if he wasn't. Not good I for the know. brand. <laughs> if he didn't choose to wear them in the internal eternal afterlife. <laughs> it's not good for the brand. <laughs> Have you ever heard of William Randolph Hearst? Yes. Where do I know that name from? You may have heard of Hearst Castle, or you may have heard of the man who brought zebras to California, and now there's fucking wild zebras. I have heard of this man. I knew it. He is... Um, He's mostly famous, I guess, like in California also because he has literal castle that is one of the most, if not the most brilliantly gorgeous architectural mazes. Like it's like every room is a completely different style from like crazy old like artifacts or amazing like um Artists, he he made his millions um, in the newspaper industry in like the early 20s. Like he's like kind of a um, roaring 20s kind of celebrity. Yeah. 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 And he was just a pure eccentric. So if you ever have the chance to visit his castle, Daniel took me when we were in California. It is unbelievable. Like huge, like indoor pools. Um, He had like a zoo on his property and like at some point had polar bears and like other random shit, like weird guy. He's buried there. And I saved the best for last. The body of Phineas Gage. I don't know who that is. You both do. Phineas Gage. I'm like looking at Drew's face because I feel like it's on the tip of your tongue. I'll give you a hint. You read about him in your psychology class. Wait, wait. Phineas Gage. Did he get the spike through his head? Yes! 
Tell tell the Wait, story, Drew. How do I remember that? Jesus. He was working on a railroad, and he ended up getting a railroad spike through his. I forget what what part of the brain. I think it was like he basically gave him gave himself a uh, a lobotomy, and he was not able to feel any sort of like emotions or anything. It was completely weird. Everyone's like, "How the heck did you survive? How the heck do you have no emotions? What's up with you?" It was basically yeah. He he couldn't feel anything. Did he ex- he like turned himself into a psychopath? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it always comes up in the context of when people talk about like where is your personality or where does your personality come from? Phineas Gage is an exit. The frontal, uh, like the two frontal lobes, right? Oh yeah. There's a lot of like people who commit really violent crimes who they can track back head trauma, especially the frontal part when they were younger. Yeah. There's been, I forget what serial killers it was. There was a couple of serial killers who had like definitive frontal lobe trauma when they were younger. And People said, like, as soon as they started to recover, they had changed their empathy, drop, zero, none. That actually, that's freaky. It is freaky. Because people always bring up, like, you know, if in the conversations that are like, is your personality in your head? Like, is it biological? Is it a part of your brain? Phineas Gage always comes up in conversation as somebody whose personality completely shifted because of trauma to the brain. Um, I say his body though because his head his brain's not there his head is his on head what the fuck <laughs> it's on display at harvard good job harvard claps oh. for you get harvard <laughs> yeah harvard at least did they steal this body or was this one that they they got legally? i don't know who decided that the head goes on one side of the country and the body goes on the other but phineas gage is did they need the head why couldn't they just take the brain Literally, I have no idea. I have no idea why Harvard was like, yeah, oh, we don't want the whole thing. Uh, wrap that up. Send it back. <laughs> I'm trying this. to find a picture because I really want to see what it looks like. <sighs> don't show me. I don't want to see that. That's it. That's it from me. That's wow. <laughs> that was my final, <laughs> my final act. I can't tell if he's alive or dead here. <laughs> without a head <laughs> no no but you know how they used to this this photo you know how they used to do photography of once your loved ones had died they'd take photos because it might be the only photo you ever have of them and i can't tell whether this is that well he's in one piece so at least it's before That's harvard sign. <laughs> harvard got their hands on him wow that is amazing what a cool cemetery I really want to go visit. Do you reckon they have like cemetery or death themed like cafes or restaurants? Oh my God, that would be brilliant. Yeah. Like I wonder if they get any kind of tourism specifically for the fact that it's this massive fucking cemetery. Like it's so, like I feel like it is incorrect to say there's a cemetery in Colma. It's like, it's more to say that there is a town in a cemetery or that Colma is a cemetery. cemetery. It's a real ass necropolis. I really want to go. I'll investigate it. See what's see what's up. See if I can find the tours. I want to say if when I come to America, if I can do like a stop by San Francisco, we should try do like a group tour. Yes, we need like a group jumping photo in front of Colma. (laughs) Yes, we can rent a car and do some road trips. Yes, that would be amazing. Welcome to Colma. Well, thank you guys for joining us for our holiday episode. Um, Really, none of it had anything to do with Christmas. So um, hope that was still enjoyable. (laughs) Come hang out with us on Discord. You can show us all your favorite awful videos that you love to watch on the internet. Come hang out with us on Spotify. I don't know why I wanted to say that. (laughs) Yeah. Come hang out with us on Spotify. Twitter is Go Ask Alice Pod. 
Go ask Al's podcast on Instagram and Sarah at Sarah Web Science is your TikTok destination. Thank you, everybody who um, joined us here for this warm, friendly, fun-loving excursion through the internet. And we love Van. We love Van. We love Van. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Here, you messy bitch. <laughs> yeah.